Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. I will be reading first in English and then in Mandarin Chinese. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discernings I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of how we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Second Corinthians 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against this knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And now I'll be reading in Mandarin Chinese. 哥林多前书第一章第十八节到第二十五节 因为实际价的道理对走向灭亡的人来说是愚笨的，但对我们这些得救的人却是神的大能。因为经上记着说：“我要绝灭智慧人的智慧，气肺、聪明人的聪明。智慧人在哪里？经学家在哪里？今世的
was Don Richardson's missionary book called Peace Child. Many of you know the plot. In Rough Contours, it is Don and his wife Carol Richardson went out to West Papua New Guinea. At that time, it was Dutch New Guinea. And met the Stone Age tribe of the Salwids, who were or had a reputation for being headhunters and cannibals. They had a uh, custom of friend fattening. They would invite someone over and uh, uh, pretend to accept them and then eat them. You can imagine missionaries going to that tribe, the difficulty they would have sharing the gospel with them. And Richardson, in his book, recounts that when they did first recount the gospel, that when they came to the end of the life of Christ, that the Sawways broke out into applause. Not for Jesus, but for Judas. The central value of that tribe was treachery. Consequently, Jesus was perceived as being the sucker And Judas was the hero. In other words, the Sawe's presuppositions and perceptions and values were so upside down to them that the gospel made no sense to them whatsoever. Now, I want to suggest that the situation we find ourselves in our contemporary modern world is similar to that. We live in a context where our neighbors and contemporaries and a large part of us finds the gospel as something to which we are blind. In two studies in the United States, one taken in 2001 and then repeated again in 2008, when people were asked for the, uh, their self-identity of their religious affiliation, there was only one category which increased in all 50 states. And that was the category of none. In 1900, given another survey, broadly speaking, there were only 0.2% of people, broadly speaking, would identify themselves as what we call today secular. That wasn't the term used in uh, 1900. And then, again, in 2000, that group, broadly speaking, had grown in the West to 22%. So from one-fifth of 1% to roughly one-fifth of citizens in the West identified themselves as secular. To both Sawe and secular, the Christian gospel seems foolish, and to be a Christian is to be a fool. Sociologists tell us that all human societies need to identify their grouping in at least three ways, one positive and two negative. There need to be heroes. Those are the goals. That's the bullseye of the society. And uh, sociologists also said for some time one of the problems in our contemporary world is that we have so few appropriate or proper or laudable role models or heroes, but that's another sermon for another occasion. Two of the categories are negative. They are villains and fools. And just as most of us, I dare say, would not like to be considered villains, similarly, most of us would not like to be called fools or foolish. That's part of the the process of maturity. And probably all of us in this room have some scars in our youth. Scars, some scars are good for us. They show that we're lived in, 12 stitches or not. Uh, But that uh, 
you're silly, you're foolish, and we take steps that we won't be called that. Genesis 2 tells us that one of God's great gifts to humankind is the ability to name. So when the animals are presented to Adam, he has the privilege and the right to name them, which means to identify them. In the fallen world in which we live, this great gift, this great privilege is both constructive and like all gifts in a fallen world, it can also be destructive. We name and we misname. We identify and we misidentify. We identify correctly and we stereotype. And so in a fallen world, when we look at identity and we look at naming, we always have to ask ourselves, says who and why? What agent, for what motive and for what reason and for what values and what presuppositions and what perceptions is the identification being made? Now, I want to suggest that the situation that we find ourselves in as Christians and the church today is not unique. I promised last Sunday that I wasn't going to use any of my research of the two weeks preceding. A little bit is going to come in this morning right here. Parallels can be drawn between our time in the 21st century to some of the ebbs and flows and eddies of the 15th and 16th century. It was a time of great change and chaos, the synthesis and the certainty of the Middle Ages had been shattered. It was the process of being broken. The Reformation was clashing with the Catholic world and ferment and change was all around. Shakespeare could say at that time, for that matter, this time as well, truth and goodness to the vile seemed vile. Judas was the hero, Jesus the sucker, north was south, east was west, up was down, inside was outside, and make matters worse. The church had become deeply worldly. Thomas Lenacre, who was the physician to Henry V, Henry VIII, excuse me, Henry V, the great idealized king of England, but to Henry the Henry VIII's physician, and after which Lineker College in Oxford has been named, uh, never read the Gospels until late in life, until he was an old man. And when he did, he famously said, either this is not the Gospel, or we are not Christians. The disparity between what people were doing and what the church was saying about it and what it was revealing and showing was so great that the gospel itself had been distorted and was difficult to perceive as being real. Very like, in many ways, the challenge I believe that we find ourselves in in the 21st century. Now, at precisely this moment... There arose a Christian humanist named Erasmus. I disagree with Erasmus in many ways and find myself much more theologically attuned to one of his conversation partners and in many ways opponents, Martin Luther and others. But on this particular point, I find Erasmus to be profound. He too was a critic of the worldliness of the church 
And he understood, to use Erasmus's language and others, that there is such a thing as being a fool proper. There is a, a biblical mandate for that. Whoever says in their heart there is no God, they are foolish. They are fools. But there's also thing, such a thing as being a fool bearer, one who, on the basis of the reigning norms and understandings of society, are to be called a fool. Christians are full bearers, and then the paper I'll be working on that will not come into this, we as Christians are called also in part to be fool makers um, with strategies of indirect communication. But let's look for a few moments at our vocation, our calling before Christ of being fool bearers. Erasmus wrote... Uh, possibly his most famous tome, certainly one of them, when he was visiting his dear friend Sir Thomas More in praise of folly. And he has Mistress Folly praising many of the vices and ridiculous things of the contemporary culture until at the end he's using a wit and sarcasm. Uh, Mistress Folly takes off her cap and bells and reveals herself in the last three pages as being the wisdom of Christ. Exactly what the origins of April Fool's Day that some of you may be celebrating. Uh, is it tomorrow? Um, it's that's somewhat shrouded in obscurity. It could be the case, that I didn't know until this week, that uh, and about five centuries ago, about 500 years ago, our calendars changed and we put the first of the year back to January 1st from April 1st. Perhaps it had something to do with the Feast of Fools during the Middle Ages in which uh, uh, God brings, the text says, in the Magnificat to Mary. He brings low the mighty. And so there was a very controversial custom. I looked at some Catholic sources uh, this week and they said they were very defensive about this and said, well, there are not many records of this in the liturgy at all and the few we have, it was done perhaps uh, before Vespers itself started. But the Feast of Fools was a time in which the mighty were brought low, in which uh, boys or subalterns or deacons uh, played the role of priests, and instead of having the Eucharist, sausages were tossed around in the, in, in the cathedral. It was a, a foolish time. The Huffington Post has an article about uh, epic events in modern history about April Fool's Day. This has very little to do with the sermon. But I want to bring it in here. Uh, in 1957, the BBC went over the, very elaborately, you can see pictures of it on the internet, they went over in 57 to Switzerland, and uh, they uh, photographed, they put straw, long strands of spaghettis on tree, trees, and they came back and they broadcast uh, the Swiss harvesting uh, spaghetti from trees, and the next day they were inundated with calls, where can we, where can we get spaghetti trees? In 1962, Swedish television, which is only black and white uh, at that time, 1962, said that if you, if you uh, stretched nylon stockings over the tube, and they had a lot of scientific falderall to explain why this made sense, your black and white tube would become a color set. In uh, 1998, Burger King announced with great fanfare that to all their left-handed customers that they were going to start baking left-handed Whoppers. And people uh, stormed them the next day to find those. And more recently, in 2007, I don't remember this, but I've seen the photos of it, Google announced uh, 
their uh, release of Google Paper, replete with uh, website and all. And they said that they were going to ship to your doorstep uh, all of your emails, all printed out. And their motto was, paper, plain and simple. April Fool's Day is a way of being uh, fool makers, as perhaps uh, was the custom in the Feast of Fools. The Bible offers some different takes on proper foolery. It says, first of all, let's face it, everybody is a fool. We are all sons and daughters of our father and mother, Adam and Eve, and we've all got fruit on our face. We've all been choosing, and we've all been choosing wrong. Somebody says that we're all like a group of toddlers confined to a playroom trying to spell God with the wrong letters on the block. Did you listen to the text this morning? The Apostle Paul had to learn it the hard way. There he is with a Ph.D. stuck in his belt and his nose stuck up in the air, able to out-debate anybody in this world. And if he couldn't, he would stone them to death. And there he was with his nose pushed down into the dust. And now he's been able to get up with freedom and laughter and say, where is the wisdom of this world? Where's the great debater of this age? Has not the wisdom of God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It's one of the great liberating lessons of all of life. We are all fools with our nose down in the dust. So we are fools by confession, but then we are called to be fools for Christ. Not fools proper, but fool bearers. Because we are going to live in a way in which the standards of our convening society understandably think look foolish. When Jesus came and showed us how to live our lives, he said things like, Love your enemy and let go of your claim even on your dearest possessions, your family, your profession, your accomplishments. The poor will become rich. The dying will live, and they laughed at him. And they nailed him to a tree, and they left some more. Can you imagine how the ancient world felt when just a few, really days, weeks later, those who followed him said that this one, this Jesus whom you crucified, is alive, and he really is God's son. Underneath the city of Rome, has been discovered some graffiti. Apparently people have been creating graffiti as long as people have been alive. There's a figure kneeling before a figure on a cross that has a donkey's head on it. And the caption that is written underneath it is, Alexandrinus worships his God. A second century philosopher Roman philosopher named Celsus writes this. These Christians say, let no one wise or educated or sensible draw near, but as for anyone ignorant or stupid or uneducated or a child, let him come boldly. And then he said, by the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show they are able to convince only the dishonorable, foolish and stupid, only slaves and women, 
and little children. To be sure, these people are our spiritual ancestors. Celsus has good company in Paul, who says not many wise, not many are strong, not many noble. We are all fools of Christ. He didn't say not any. But the critics of the first Christians looked down and sniffed fools. And the first Christians, with freedom and joy, said, that's right. That's us. The thing is, by worldly standards, they really were fools. They said slaves were to be esteemed as masters. Women were to be esteemed as men. Jews and Gentiles, Samaritans and Ethiopians, who by all other ways of social categorization were to be separate, were to keep company together, served together, integrated together, loving together. They cared little for money. Many of them gave away what they had. Most of all, these people were dedicated to say to whoever would listen, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why they weren't afraid to die. That's why they didn't live cautious, joyous lives. The reason why many of us are cautious and joyless is because we are living so much of our time as though kings and queens and presidents and CEOs really are in charge of the world. We are living as though Jesus Christ were still in the tomb rather than raised from the dead and alive and worthy of our wholehearted allegiance and our undiminished love. One of my heroes in the faith is an author by the name of Frederick Buechner. He was commissioned to do an anniversary sermon, of all things, for a New England church that sits there on one of the greens. And um, at the conclusion of that sermon, I want to quote a little bit in length, about three paragraphs, but here's the conclusion of his anniversary sermon for a New England church. He had uh, searched their archives and come across their histories, and he writes, In the year 1831, it seems this church was repaired and several new additions were made. One of them was a new steeple with a bell in it. And once it was set in place and painted, apparently an extraordinary event took place. And he quotes, as I'm quoting, When the steeple was added... Howard Mudgett writes in his history, one agile Lyman Woodard stood on his head in the belfry with his feet toward heaven. End quote. At the end of the quote that Beaker's quoting. And I continue to quote. That's the one and only thing I've been able to find out about Lyman Woodard, whoever he was, but it's enough. I love him for doing what he did. It was a crazy thing to do. It was a risky thing to do. It ran counter to all standards of New England practicality and prudence. And so the whole idea that you're supposed to be nothing but Solomon church on its head, just like Lyman himself standing upside down on his. And it was also a magical and magnificent and Mozartian thing to do. If the Lord is indeed our shepherd, then everything goes topsy-turvy. Losing becomes finding, and crying becomes laughing. The last become first, and the weak become strong. Instead of life being done in by death in the end, as we always supposed, death is done in finally by life in the end. 
If the Lord is our host at the great feast, then the sky is the limit. There's plenty of work to be done down here, God knows, to struggle each day. To walk the paths of righteousness is no pushover, and struggle we must, because just as we are fed like sheep in green pastures, we must also feed his sheep, which are each other. Jesus, our shepherd, tells us that. We must help bear each other's burdens. We must pray for each other. We must nourish each other, weep with each other, rejoice with each other. Sometimes we must just learn to leave each other alone. In short, we must just love each other. But we must never forget Lyman Woodard either. Silhouetted up there against the blue Rupert sky, let us join him in the belfry with our feet toward heaven like his. Because heaven is where we're heading. That is our faith. And what better image of faith could there be? It's a little crazy. It's a little risky. It sets many a level head wagging. And it is also our richest treasure and the source of our deepest joy and highest hope. Don't you wish at the end of your life that people will say about you that you're a little crazy like that? That you have made strong choices. Strong choices on the fact that Jesus Christ alone is Lord of this world. And because of that, you will lift up your eyes to the cross of Jesus and see weakness and impoverishment and a life poured out in service even unto death, and also joy and life itself. That's the way of the cross. It's the way of foolishness, according to the world. It is also the only way. Aren't you glad enough? Aren't you glad that Jesus was foolish enough to die for people like you and me? And that God was wise enough to raise him up that people like you and me might have life. Living and holy God, we ask your forgiveness for living lives of caution. And because of that, perhaps joylessness, may we live lives radical and robust. Lives which are upside down because our feet are firmly planted in heaven. May people knowing us and seeing us see something different, see something strong, see something foolish, and because of that, something joyous and life-giving. In Jesus' name.